Okay, let's continue talking about uh, different themes in Sefer Bereshit. T today I'd like to talk about separation and uh, with a, a brief story to begin it. Um, it's a personal story. A friend of mine, uh, whom my wife and I set up, the two of them, it was a good friend of mine and it was a good friend of my wife. They were from different worlds to a certain extent, but we set the two of them up and they got happily married. And uh, P.S., before I even finish the story, they're married for, I don't know, 15 years with five children, very happily married, so the story I'm about to tell you is to, to take away from none of that. But at their engagement party, Ashkenazim referred to it as their lechaim, so my, my good friend got up and, uh, and he spoke for just a few minutes. And what he said, in addition to thanking my wife and, and myself for setting them up, he said, you know, this has just been a match of min hashamayim. This was from heaven. It was destined to be. And the proof is that we've just never gotten in a fight. And if we've never gotten in a fight, clearly this is just something above and beyond anything we could have possibly expected. I've never heard of another relationship in which the, the boy and the girl went out for a period of time and never got into a fight. So I'm brought up in a family in which we uh, solicit unsolicited um, advice uh, in, in circumstances where we see fit. So uh, later on that night, I took him to the side and I said to him, you know, it sounds to me like your relationship is, is not so deep. So I said, what do you mean? I said, if you had a, a depth in your relationship, wouldn't there be fights? Wouldn't there be circumstances where you disagree on things? You guys ever discussed matters that were significant? Have you ever been involved in conversations or debates about matters that you guys actually cared about? Because how could it be that you never disagreed about anything? Do you care about her? Does she care about you? I mean, it, it fell on deaf ears, and I hope, and I'm sure they've had many fights over the course of the rest of their, <laughs> their years together, but I, I think that kind of story demonstrates and, and describes to us in relationships to a certain extent how separation is often or, or, or can be uh, in a way, something that breathes life into the relationship. Now, that's not to say that there can't be devastation through separation, but at the same time, it's to argue, and that's what I'd like to throw out, that there's a certain healthiness and a certain uh, vibrancy that uh, is born out of separation at the appropriate times in all relationships and all circumstances in life. In fact, in this first source, right, from M. Scott Peck in his book, The, Ro the Road Less Traveled, he's describing relationships, and he writes, if I'm not mistaken, the heading to this uh, section is love is separateness, right? He writes, although the act of nurturing another's spiritual growth has the effect of, nur of nurturing one's own, a major characteristic of genuine love is that this distinction between oneself and the other is always maintained and preserved. The genuine lover always perceives the beloved as someone who has a totally separate identity. Moreover, the genuine lover always respects and even encourages the separateness and the unique individu individuality of the beloved. Failure to perceive and respect this separateness is extremely common, however, and the cause of much mental illness and unnecessary suffering, which means to say, in shorter you know, language, is when you're involved in a relationship and there's no space and there's no capability for each one of the individuals or all of the individuals to operate while on a team, but as individuals as well, so you stunt the growth and the better of all. Uh, so now, that's the introduction. How does that have anything to do with Sefer Bereshit? If you ask me, it has everything to do with Sefer Bereshit. And I'll begin at the very beginning. 
You see, there were these two individuals who were created, right? Adam and Hava. And they're placed in this garden. And they're told, don't eat from this tree, this Eitz Tov and Ra. And sure enough, they transgress and they eat from that tree. And then the history as we know it of mankind, of human life, is forever different. What changed? What was altered from the state of being before and after? Well, we know in some way or another, the, as the Nahash described, by eating from this tree, there was some sort of intellectual capacity that we acquired. Did things get better? Did things get worse? Uh, we certainly had a, we now have a lifespan, Torah describes, that motamutu, you're going to die immediately after eating from it, which means to a certain extent we live lives in which we have finite uh, lifespans. But fundamentally, what changed before and after eating from Etzadat? So Ramban Nahmani in his Perush the Torah argues the following. It's hard to understand, but I'd like to take a few minutes to understand it together with you. He argues that prior to eating from this tree, there was no rason. There was no freedom of choice. It's only after eating from the tree that they got born within them a certain human characteristic known as Desire, known as freedom of choice. Which means to say, prior to eating from the tree, they only wanted to do the right thing. And they only wanted to be involved in tov, constantly and at all times. After eating from the tree, in his words, By eating from the tree, there's a ratzon, there's a hefet, there's an individual passion and desire. And he says, that's what da'at is. Da'at, it's hada'at tovara. His last words are hada'at yomru bilshonenu al-harasom. Passion, desire, freedom of choice is born out of eating from this tree. Any questions? There's, of course, a blatant issue here. If there was no freedom of choice prior to eating from the tree, how'd they eat from the tree, right? It's impossible that they ate from the tree. Abar Benel, in fact, asked this and several other glaring, glaring, rather, questions on Ramban. He says, how's it possible that we went from no freedom of choice to a freedom of choice through sin? What's more is, if there's no freedom of choice, how could you give a warning? There's no need for a warning. You don't have an ability to choose differently. Furthermore, if we are, and the Torah doesn't describe a physical change in the makeup of Adam and Hava, if we were created with a physical body and spirit, well, it's impossible that we didn't have desires. By definition, we're physical beings. That's just the way it works. We have desires, we have passions, we have inclinations. He says, ultimately speaking, he says, I can't understand anything Ramban Argued. So again, what have we set forth? A question. What's the question? What changed before and eating after eating from that tree? Argues Ramban the ability to choose freely. Says Abar Benel, what are you talking about? Doesn't make any sense. There couldn't be a commandment. It doesn't fit the circumstance. And furthermore, they couldn't have made that decision if they didn't have an ability to choose differently. So the general answer given, and it's a very important one, in source number four from Rabbi Dessler in his book, Mikhtav Me'eliyahu, but it's really, it's in Nefesh HaChayim, in Sha'ar Aleph, it's suggested by many in different contexts and different ways goes as follows. And it's an important distinction. 
and it, to wrap your head around, it is to wrap your head around really what it means to be a human being. Right? His, his argument goes like this. This is what Ramban meant. Prior to eating from this tree, quote unquote, was a reality in which, yeah, we had decision making. But our inclination was slanted. It was slanted to making the right decisions. You know, put, a, put, a, a, put any person in front of a, a, a blaring fire, they're not going to jump into the fire. In that circumstance, it's easy to make the right decision. You turn away from it, right? Everything in life was almost that easy. The inclination was to make the proper decision. What's the proper decision? Well, we used our minds, we used our proper hearts, we knew what Tob was. After eating from the tree, after the decision to eat from Etzadat, what Ramban is describing is we now have a slanted inclination the other way. Our inclination now is for ourselves, not for an almost objective good, not for the truthful right approach, but rather for what we want, what will make us feel good. Doesn't say after they realized they were naked? They, they realized were naked they were naked before. by definition, right. a nakedness is a societal norm. The decision that we've made to not walk around naked is a decision that we've made as human beings, right? That's not a Torah thing? What's that? Well, the Torah describes it in the aftermath of eating as them being clothed and then God clothing them, right? But it means that prior to that, they were living in a black and white world. A black and white world doesn't drive me to put on clothing because there's nothing per se. As a matter of fact, the Torah although it necessitates clothing, gives some damning words for clothing. Clothing are bigadim. Livgod means to betray. Right? And me'il. Me'il means, lim'ol ma'al means to, to almost rob someone or to, to in, in a marriage, it means to cheat on the other individual. What's that? Camouflage. You're camouflaging because you're hiding your true self. But in a society, we need to do so. That's just the way the world progresses. Which means to say, and here's the key point, eating from this tree brought about life. It brought about humanity. Right? It brought about our emotions and the fact that we struggle and we have challenges and we feel like we might want to do that, but we have to think better of it. Prior to eating from the tree, as the Torah is describing it to a certain extent, life was a lot more simple in the respect that those challenges didn't really represent themselves. If your mind, if your heart, if your body is almost in a perfect state, so to, what, what's the challenge of living? You're not a human being. You're almost an angel or almost a god. The irony, of course, is that by eating from the tree where they imagined will become more godly, they became human beings. But being a human being means striving for that state of being of completeness. But... I ask you the following question, and here's really what brings us into this discussion of separation. Listen, we're all human beings, and we all, I think, thrive or seek to thrive in moments of challenge. If we're put in circumstances and situations where there's no challenge, we become bored, and we lack passion. Why not create us immediately in a post-etadat world? 
Why didn't God create Adam and Chava immediately, all of humanity, as human beings? Why create them, at least in the telling of the Torah, in a fashion in which we kind of were inclined to do the right thing, but sinned, caused separation, were banished from Gan Eden, and then became quote-unquote human beings as we know? Why not just create them as regular human beings? It's the million-dollar question. It's almost as if the system was rigged for us to eat from the tree. Life was quite boring. What were you doing? What was life about if you couldn't do real bad? You had to overcome your inclination to do bad. So why weren't we created that way initially? Like a baby, also with the shamefulness they felt when they realized they were naked, it's like a child, right? First, the naked, the bodies are all cool, nothing wrong with them. And then you, at a certain age, you, you understand that there is, your innocence is gone. So they were born into a maturity. Why didn't, why weren't they born no, with a maturity? No, they were born with an immaturity. And right. They needed to mature. What I'm saying, they, they grew reflect. into a maturity. So right, so to, to put it in different words, this separation, this sinfulness was necessary to bring about the maturity. I think we know it from either our own lives or the lives of our children as well. When you catch, quote unquote, your child rebelling, Mm -hmm. so you might for a moment or two, or more than a moment or two, come down on them and reprimand them because they went against your will. Somewhere deep down, you're kind of reveling in that moment as well you're kind of realizing that they just grew into a state of being in which, hi, in which they were able to make a decision on their own. There's something great to be said for that. They're growing into adulthood. They are now able to possess themselves in a way that they've determined outside of my strict word. They're almost ready, quote unquote, for the real world. They might be so far from the real world, but there's some beauty to it. The separation born out of sin, out of rebellion, is really what describes our life and gives meaning to our life. Had we not started with the sin, we never could have come to a state in being in which we dreamt for ourselves. Had we not begun in almost that, almost the state of utopia and then torn from it, we'd never have a vision of kind of where we want to go. In fact, my favorite author, I, I quote him often, is Oliver Sacks. Here in source number five, uh, he was a, a neurologist who wrote case studies of different individuals with all sorts of funny and peculiar situations, neurological disorders. And uh, in his, uh, one of his early books, An Anthropologist for Mars, so he has this story called The Landscape of His Dreams. It's a true story. He's describing an individual, his name was Franco, is, I think he's still alive. And it, this, this, this guy, Franco, he, he was born in a town in Italy called Pantito. Right, so he comes from Pantito, and he was, uh, at a young age, kind of had to move out of there. At the time of World War II, he kind of had to leave. And he always dreamt of this city, but like graphic dreams. Like he remembered it in vivid detail. And he was also really artistic. And so he painted 50 years later, 40 years later, perfect pictures of his hometown without having been there for 40 years. 
And so Oliver Sacks, he's writing in the 80s, kind of has this question, which uh, this Franco was faced with as well, should he go back and visit his hometown? Because on the one hand, the separation from the town has given him this inspiration in life. He's longing for the return to Pantito. We re long for that return to Gan Eden. We have dreams of what it means to live that sort of life, but on our own, being able to get there on our own because we became separated from it. What happens when we're placed back in Gan Eden? What happens to the challenges in life? What happens to being a human being who accomplishes, who's creative, who connects to God in an individual fashion? It kind of disappears. So the description over here, and ultimately he goes back to his hometown, this Franco, and he has like this terrible experience because he kind of goes back and he can't imagine what it actually looks like. He kind of had these dreams of it looking differently. He was stunted from his painting for months because the experience of actually going back and being there was so jarring. He had to be separate. It had to be just in his dreams, in his recollection. Here's There was an irony and paradox here. Franco thought of Pantito constantly Constantly. Saw it in fantasy, depicted it as infinitely desirable, and yet he had a profound reluctance to return. How could you be reluctant to return? Isn't that where you want to be? Isn't that what you're always talking about? Yeah, it has to be a dream. It has to be a vision of where I want to be. But it is precisely such a paradox that lies at the heart of nostalgia, for nostalgia is about a fantasy that never takes place, one that maintains itself by not being fulfilled, specifically by beginning in Gan Eden, I'm interjecting, by starting in that inhumane fashion, almost angelic fashion, being stripped from that, forced to, not forced, but led into eating from Eitz Hadat, living a life now out of our own decision, that separation gives us the inspiration to continue in life, to want to accomplish. In relationships, we know it. In a relationship between husband and wife, between child and parent, between student and teacher, there has to be some sort of moments of separation in order to keep a longing. If there's a constancy, it becomes stagnant, it becomes boring. And yet such fantasies are not just idle daydreams or fancies. They press towards some sort of fulfillment, writes Oliver Sacks, but an indirect one, the fulfillment of art, right? That's art, that's creativity. When I feel like I want to be there, I can fantasize about it, I can talk about it, I can describe and understand my life. One may be born with the potential for a prodigious memory, but one is not born with a dispossession, disposition to recollect. So he's determined, he's describing the difference as a rec of, between a recollection and a memory. And he says, remembering means I know exactly what happened. A recollection is the way I remember it. So if I never move, if I'm never separated, so I'm living a life of memory. If I'm separated, so I'm constantly defining my life kind of through where I want to be, where I came from. If I'm constantly in my parents' home, I'm never able to tear myself out and say, where do I want to be? I'm just there. 
I don't have the capability to dream and to grow. Discontinuity and nostalgia are most profound if, in growing up, we leave or lose the place where we were born and spent our childhood. If we become expatriates or exiles, if the place or the life we were brought up in is changed beyond recognition or destroyed. All of us finally are exiles from the past, but this is particularly true for Franco, who feels himself, or Franco maybe it is, the sole survivor and a rememberer of a world forever past. Of course, it's us in Am Yisrael until pretty recent, longing for Eretz Yisrael, right? We were in exile. We ourselves are in exile. There's something great to being in Galut. It leaves us longing. It leaves us wanting to get somewhere. It leaves us with a challenge in life. If you're just born on the silver spoon, you kind of don't have the passion to accomplish much more. You need to separate yourself, and oftentimes with a sin, you started off on the silver soup spoon. You took the spoon and threw it. You had the experience of what it was, but now you're doing it on your own. You're driving toward it. That, in my mind, is the description of humanity. It's the description of Bereshit. It's not only there in Bereshit that you have this type of vision. You see it again at a really critical but often overlooked moment. And that is, right, we're past Gan Eden, we're past Adam and Chava, God destroys the world in the Mabul, and then after the Mabul, we're hoping for a good continuity, and we have what's known as the Dor HaPalaga, nothing ends up all that well. The individual who's in charge is this guy named Nimrod, and the people come together, the entire world, source six, is one language and they talk about one thing. Could it be better than that? We all get along. We all speak the same language. We all see eye to eye. No. That's, a room, that's room for stagnation. If we all talk the same thing, there's no room for growth. If there's no separation between me and you, then wh where are we going? We're not able to challenge one another. It's boring, and we can't grow in a boring environment. We need to be separated. And so we come together, and what do we decide to do during that time period? To build this city with a tower in the middle, and we want it to rise all the way up because we're going to take one way of life and just build it upward. We can't see horizontally because we're never challenged to see horizontally. We're not challenged to grow. We're challenged just to build on top of what we already know and just to apply it in a different way. So they build upward and God in turn is challenged because the mandate for us is to grow as human beings and we're not growing as human beings. We're just becoming set. And our fear at that time, in fact, is penafutz, the pasuk says. We're nervous, we'll be dispersed. What's wrong with being dispersed? The second you're dispersed means I'm separate. I feel vulnerable, but I'm forced to grow. I'm forced to exhibit my individuality. Life is far from boring then, but it's really difficult. And so God comes down, and it's, of course, known as Migdal Bavil, and he's bolel, he separates and confuses everything. How terrible, why would God do it? We finally came together. But again, coming together sometimes, if there's not an appropriate separation and space, is not healthy. You lose the source of life in such a circumstance. In fact, 
in this context, in source number seven, uh, the, the Kabbalists see, it's quoted by Rab Tzadok HaKohen, the Kabbalists see this in some way, and I'll tell you kind of the word they play with, you'll pick up on in a second, being the inspiration or the source in some way or another of what we know as Torah Shabalpeh, the oral tradition of Torah. All the books in this room, right, all the rabbinic works, all of our own thought on Torah, grew out of, in their mind, Migdal Bavil. Well, certainly the Gemara that we generally use is known as Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian one, so kind of matches in that respect, Migdal Bavil, and they are playing on that word. But in what way is Torah Peh, which is kind of in the scheme of things, what we do when we study Torah, what we're developing right now is Torah Peh. Torah Bechtav means just reading God's words. What we're doing right now is developing thoughts and trying to figure out for our own minds and our own lives what Torah means. That's Torah Peh. That came out of Migdal Bavel. But I think, again, the point is the same. If we all talk the same way, if we all see things the same way, if we only talk about the same thing, if we have that rigidity to life, and all we can do is look upward, but we can't look to the side, and you can't challenge me, and I can't get in a fight with you because that's dangerous to get in a fight with you, and I can't think differently, and I can't sin and stumble, and in turn look back to you and say, but I want to be a part of this. Let's figure out a way to mend this so that my relationship with you and my relationship with the Torah is, again, boring. Go ahead. Right. They feel like they want to speak the same and not even look at other people, and it's lauded to be like, this is the ideal. Right. So living a life in which there's no room for individuality is very dangerous. There can be, there can be room for certain uniformity. In other words, we can dress the same way and kind of sequester ourselves, you know, separate ourselves, but at the same time, individuality promoted. I mean, think about Am Yisrael in, in the desert, right? So we were kind of this nation, we had the same laws, and to a certain extent, we still do, right? We have the same laws, we are bound together, but at the same time, we were told, if you want, you could be a Nazir, right? You can set, set yourself apart. If you want, you can work in the Mishkan. If you want, in other words, there's always been this vision. Thank you very much. My pleasure, thanks for coming. There's always been this vision of let's keep together because there are fears from the outside of kind of losing our tradition, our unity, which is positive, but there has to be room for, for separation, for individuality. If there's not, then you've kind of lost the chance for growth. Creativity is stunted. I'm telling you that if they're doing it fully uniformly, then it's bad. That's, that's in, in short the answer. In fact, you know, there's this midrash that describes the fact that prior to the world, several things were created. It's hard to understand. One of them is Torah. Well, we can kind of wrap our head around that, right? Torah being the blueprint of existence was created prior to existence itself in some way or fashion. Another thing that's created, as to being created before, um, before creation itself is Teshubah. Teshubah means I've wronged you, I've wronged God, and now I'm returning. Prior to creation of the world, God almost foresaw sinning? I mean, that's, that's not fair. 
I mean, so then why are we punished? But it's one but and the same. Point, your point of all this is really, it's, we're, it's, we're looking for growth, and we're not going to all have growth if we're the same. Those, those sects that do everything the same, and even the community that does everything the same, it's, it's a fear thing. Oh, certainly. They're, they're so, doing it, but doing it, but that's, that's, that's against growth. Fear is against growth. Sure. Right? So there's everybody trying to be the same, so nobody, you know, you don't look at anyone, you don't talk to anyone, only our people. Like, that's, that's actually a stunt of growth. Sure, Robin. Right? But at the same time, what I'm saying is, there is, there's a balance, That's that, and that was really my answer, there's a balance. In other words, at once, we want to have a certain, um, we fear that we'll lose a certain stability, so I want to be bound together in a community. At the same time, I need the individuality, and if I don't, if it's all the same, so then it's not good. Um, you know, I, the, the examples I give to that, you know, let, let me finish the point on Tishuba. So the concept on Tishuba again, is there had to be Tishuba. There had to be sins. We have to live a life in which we tear each other, tear ourselves away from one another and then only come back because otherwise we lose a certain passion, inspiration and source of creativity. If I'm not separated from you ever, so then I'm not able to think as an individual and then I'm stunted. I need separation, but I need to be looking to return. Uh, you know, in terms of being stuck in our ways. And there's, again, there's a lot of beauti beauties in communities and in nationalities and all that sort of stuff. But uh, the, the examples I give, I've, I've, I've mentioned more than once are, my father told me that um, when he was younger in Bet Torah, there was one set of, uh, of Arbat Aminim, of Lulav and Etrog. One set of lulav and etrog, and they would pass it around the synagogue. And that was our way to a certain extent. Can you imagine if we said, that's our way? I mean, so we'd still just have one set in every synagogue? I, I, there was very few sukkot, sukkah structures. And that was kind of the community structure. My aunts, my father's sister, uh, didn't go to, uh, didn't have yeshiva uh, uh, education. And I'm sure, my mother, who's Ashkenazic, did. I'm sure if I asked my grandmother, my father's mother, she would say, listen, it's not really our way. Can you imagine that being stated today if we kind of stuck to our way, if we had this uniformity where we weren't able to separate ourselves? We needed individuals to step out and say, maybe we can see this differently, which in turn changed the community as well. I mean, my, my father, uh, more, I, I heard from others, which is what, what, what uh, you know, kind of solidifies this point, when he was a rabbi in, in Benesha Aretzion like 40 years ago. So he was interested in bringing learning to the community. This was his passion at the time. Mm -hmm. Learning, higher level learning. Do you remember these days? So he got in a big fight at the time. He wanted to bring bookcases into the synagogue. Yeah, and so there was a lot, a lot of pushback from the board of Sha'arizion at the time. This isn't our way. We don't do that. You could do that in your home, do that in your school. We don't do that in city. Can you imagine what Sha'arizion would look like today if there weren't individuals who stood out a little bit and kind of said, we can see this differently, we can separate from this? So there's this separation, but again, I, I have to stress in all this, there's kind of a, a, a will to get back to a certain place as well. We want optimal growth. So we were banished from Gan Eden and we're constantly thinking, in my own way, how do I build my way back there? That's how I, that's how I grow. I was kind of have this Migdal Bavel which is destroyed, but now in the future I'm still looking to build, but I'm building it as an individual with different languages and different thoughts. Go ahead. Sure. Well, 
you know, it's questionable. That's why, so that's the answer to your earlier question. That's why we have this community structure. That's why there are certain uniformities, because there is a danger and there is a fear, and we kind of want to checks and balances. And the way something's going to prevail is if, usually, if it's actually good. Do you know what I'm saying? So we're kind of building a paradox. We're building on the one hand a community and a nation which stands by singular beliefs and thoughts. At the same time, we're building a little room in there for people to separate. And if it kind of infiltrates, if it kind of is something special, it's going to hopefully take hold. But you need that room. And if there's not that room, so there's no growth. As parents, as you, spouses, you, you personally would not go back to Gan Eden given the choice. I would. Uh, would I just walk in there? In other words, if I was given, first of all, it's, it's too theoretical because it can never happen. God would never open the door our for just entering our in. Imagination is limitless. But what, what I'm saying is, He couldn't allow me to just go back in. The concept is an unfathomable concept. Gan Eden, by definition, needs to remain an ideal. It needs to remain something that I strive toward. That's why he places God, right, the sword there, because you can't just come back in here because by definition, I've created a process for you and that process is born out of separation. Yes, I wouldn't because it would never happen. It can't happen. How come I can fathom it? I don't know. I don't know because but when, I would. But when they talk about Mashiach coming, the, the ideal is Mashiach coming, we're all going to be in God aiding. It's for that Israel, reason, gonna... and I mean it's for that reason, for this reason, that Harambam writes in Hilchot Melachim when Mashiach comes, Olam Kimin Hagol Onoheg, the world will still be the same. What do you mean the world will be the same? Mashiach time. No, he says, listen, lots of the difficulties will be wiped away. So it means lots of the competition that exists out in the world and animosity and diseases will kind of cease to exist in the same fashion because our minds will be elevated. But the challenges as human beings will persist because you can't have a world, you can't have a life in which you don't have those challenges. Yes, we're striving for that Gan Eden, but we'll never get there. It's that paradox, but it has to exist. If we didn't have that ideal, we wouldn't be working towards something. If we were there, we wouldn't be working towards something. We'd just be building upward. As, as parents, as educators, this, I, the way Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg describes it, and I can definitely relate to this, even though my kids are not so old, but every time one of my kids hits, I don't know, a milestone in their life and kind of develops a certain independence, it's a difficult moment for me because I was kind of holding their hand until then. They were looking at me for advice, and now they're kind of doing that on their own. But at the same time, I'm understanding that this is the way to optimal growth. It's the Torah Shabal Peh model as well. God, to a certain extent, hands over the Torah to us and says, guys, you interpret, really, God? Can you hold my hand? Can you tell me what's right? I don't want to have these fears and these difficulties in getting it right, but God says, it's got to be this way because you won't actually understand it. You won't grow if you're not doing that on your own separate from me. Here's how she writes it in her book, The Beginning of Desire. One might say that the difficulty, it should say, of rearing children has to do with the ambiguities of independence. The child must separate from the parent. The parent must allow the child to discover his or her own reality. That's not easy for the parent nor for the child, but really not for the parent, right? But this separation, she writes, though necessary, is a complex and often tormented experience. In the act of creation, there's perhaps inevitable sadness as the work works itself loose 
from the vision. I've reared and raised my children to be A, B, C, and now they go out and for all I know, they'll be X, Y, Z. But the only way they could even become A, B, C is by letting go of their hand and letting them go forward. It's the same way I need to develop myself vis-a-vis my community, my spouse, my teacher, and anyone and anything else that I come in contact with in life. In fact, the Gemara describes here in Masechet Timurah Daftet Zayin the reality here in source number 11 of life post Moshe Rabbeinu. Why did Moshe need to die? He was the greatest teacher, the greatest leader. He taught us Torah so wonderfully. He kind of got it across. He built this nation. I wish he was alive forever, don't you? And the Gemara describes after his death, 1,700 laws and concepts were lost. Until, says the Gemara, generations later, Otniel ben Knaz arose and he was able to bring them back with his own erudition and, and enlightenment. What's the Gemara hinting at? And it's here in source number 12. Rav Hutner in his book, Pahadits Hakan Hanukkah and Ma'amar Gimal, makes the following argument. He says, we needed, it's paradoxical, it's tragic, but sometimes the messenger needs to be killed for the message to be transmitted. If Moshe was with us throughout, you know what we would do as a nation? We would just be looking to Moshe our growth would be stunted. We wouldn't be able to develop. Without that separation, without that independence, yes, we're always looking to bring it back to that time in which it was most ideal when we got the Torah and all that sort of stuff. In fact, he quotes the Midrash of Hutner where Moshe breaks the, uh, the Luchot and God turns to him and says, Yeyasher kohacha. And Ashkenazi would say, right? Yasher koach. Good job. Hazaku baruch, is what Adi would say. What do you mean? I just broke the tablets. I broke the Luchot. No, but that's the point. They needed to be broken. I now need the people to rebuild them. I gave you them. Their sin, the rabbis are almost hinting at another sin, which was almost a necessity in our growth, was Chetaega. We tore ourselves away from God. We ran from the Torah, but now we run back to it. It's the way this political philosopher Aaron Woldavsky writes in his book, Moses as political leader. Moses, Moshe, the eternal teacher, would then, if he never died, instead be Moshe, the permanent master. Right? The difference between a master and a teacher is a master, you say, I do. A teacher is, you say, and now I internalize it. Now I kind of understand it. I feel it all the time when students whom I've grown very close with hit milestones in their life as well. When they get to 12th grade and graduate high school and move out into a life and world where they're not talking with me constantly and I'm not, they're not under my, not 24 hour surveillance, but even, you know, a few hours a day surveillance, it's a little difficult for me. I've grown so close to them. I kind of feel like I've developed something together with them, but then I take a step back and I say, but by letting go, by allowing them that space, that separation, that's the greatest growth they can get. Again, I said, I see it in my children's lives as well. I see it as a message in Torah from Het Etzadat through Het Ha'egel and everything in between, Migdal Bavel as well. There's this message throughout. It's that story with Franco and Pantito by Oliver Sacks, which describes a reality wherein I need to dream of where I was. I needed to be separated in order to bring about a creative capacity. Life would be boring, 
and deconstructive or certainly not constructive if I wasn't in that space if I didn't have that space provided for me, life with separation means life of growth, means life of vibrancy. Amen, amen. You want, you want to hear a funny joke? Of course. Thank you. Oh. Pleasure.